Mordecai and we meet Esther. Mordecai was a Jew whose great-grandfather Kish had been carried away to Babylon when Jerusalem fell to Nebuchadnezzar. We read about that in verses 5 and 6. He had lived his entire life under captivity, under Persian rule. Esther was also a Jew, and she was a cousin of Mordecai. We see that in verse 7. Esther was her Persian name. It meant star. And Hadassah was her Hebrew name. It meant myrtle. Her mother and father had died, leaving her an orphan. And so Mordecai had raised her as his own. Again, verse 7. When the great search for a new queen was underway, Esther was taken and placed with the other prospects. Verse number 8. We learn several things about Esther in, in all of these verses. We learn that she was beautiful. Verse number 7. Apparently very much so. She impressed Haggai and therefore was given preferential status and treatment, according to verse 9. She went through the 12 months of preparation in anticipation of being with the king, and when her time came, she went to the king, verses 15 and 16. The text seems to indicate that Esther was such a natural beauty that whereas other women might have needed to go to great lengths to try to impress the king, she needed no such thing. She took nothing with her. Just what Haggai recommended she take, and everybody who saw her was impressed with her. And so based on that night, the king chose her as queen in Vashti's place. He celebrated the event with a huge feast, which is interesting because apparently there was a lot of feasting and celebrating in Persia. This is the fourth feast we've seen, and we're only in chapter 2 of the book. So there was a feast uh, for Esther. So we can sum up what happened here. Really, quite simply, Esther was chosen as queen in Vashti's place. And she was now in a position to be used by God in a very special way when her people needed such help desperately. So what happened here would have tremendous significance later in the future, the near future. At this point, she probably didn't see it. We, If we stopped reading here, we wouldn't necessarily see it. But God did. And he put her right where she needed to be. Now, there's one other thing that happened in this chapter, and it's in the last few verses, and it has to do with Mordecai, verses 21 through 23. It, too, is an example of God moving the chess pieces into place so that uh, they would all be right exactly where they needed to be. God was putting Mordecai now into a place and into a situation which would enable him to play a greater role in the future. After Esther's elevation of the queen, apparently Mordecai was also elevated in some way because we see him here in verse number 19, sitting in the gate of the king. Sitting in the gate of the king, one man said in the east, the gate was the ancient equivalent of our modern law courts, the place where important official business was transacted. So maybe Queen Esther now uh, interceded for him and got him this job. I don't know, but somehow Mordecai now finds himself in this elevated position. And while he is so engaged there in whatever his official duties were there, he heard the scheming of some other court officials, and they were planning to assassinate Ahasuerus. He relayed this information to Esther, who informed the king, and the plot was foiled. Interestingly, 14 years after this event, a couple more would try the same thing, and they would succeed. This is how Ahasuerus came to his end, uh, assassinated by a couple of his uh, court officials. But here they did not. This was not the day that was going to happen. The perpetrators were apprehended. They were hanged. The Persians did not hang like we think of hanging by the neck until dead. They impaled on a very tall, sharp post. And so these two guys uh, suffered that particular end. Mordecai received absolutely no reward 
from saving the king's life. That's important and will become important. But what he did do was written down, and it will come into play later. So that's what happened. Whatever amount of that you heard, that's what happened. Let's talk about what did not happen, because I think what did not happen is every bit as important. You see, there are two parallel thoughts that go through my mind as I study Esther. First is the obvious working of God behind the scenes. That's clearly a theme or the theme of the book. There can be no doubt that the providential working of God to accomplish his will is primary. But there's something else. There's a second thought, and that is the total disregard of God by the main characters of the play. Both thoughts to me are so obvious as we read the text that I think the Holy Spirit is speaking to us from both of those thoughts, what did happen as well as what did not happen. We spent some time noticing the first thought, how God is positioning Mordecai and Esther to be used later. But let's think about, uh, let's think about that second. Mordecai nor Esther, neither one seeking God's leadership or help in any of this. Think about this. Neither, or, neither Mordecai nor Esther at any time prayed about what was taking place here. How do you explain that? Can you explain that? I can't explain that. I've tried. I've thought about it. I've, I've read commentary after commentary. I can't explain how Mordecai nor Esther, either one, would not have prayed or sought God's help at all in any of this. Can you think of another Bible character at all in the Word of God faced with a similar situation, knowing and worshiping the God of the Bible who faced with something like this, would not have prayed, would not have sought God in some way? I can't think of a single one. And yet these two, faced with what seems a serious problem, face it without a single mention of prayer. Another thing that did not happen is they, they had not left and returned to the land. I think we talked about this a little bit last week. They had not left. Had they been familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, they would have known the words of the prophets. The words of the prophets who wrote that when the opportunity arose, they should flee captivity and return to their homeland. Isaiah said, go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant. Jacob, Jeremiah said, move from the midst of Babylon, go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be like the rams before the flocks, Free from the, flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. But here they were still in Babylon. They had not left. I don't think that fact alone is enough to really pass any judgment on them or to indicate that their allegiance to God was somehow suspect. Uh, there were others uh, who did not leave. Daniel, I think, spent all of his life there, although I, they, that was earlier on in the, in the thing. But the fact that they remained in the land and the fact that we see them never seeking God's face in any way, shape, or form uh, tells me. They were less than ideal worshipers of God. And yet there's another thing. There's another thing they did not do, which I think speaks volumes concerning where they were spiritually. And now some of you are just not going to agree with me on this at all. Some of you are going to shut me out on this completely, but here it is. They neither one said no. They neither one said no. When the king's emissaries came for Esther, Mordecai, who loved him as his, loved her as his own daughter, did not say no. Uh, Esther did not say no either, not when they came to get her and take her away, not when the time came to go into the king. She did not say no. And I know what half of you in this room are saying right now, well, poor Esther, she was a victim. That's what half of you are saying, isn't it? That's what you're thinking right now. She was a victim. She couldn't help herself. 
uh, she had to do what the king said. And Mordecai was just looking out for her interests. He didn't want her to be harmed. They were both doing the best they could in an impossible situation. But you know what I think about that? It's absolute rubbish. It's just simply not true. It's not supportable from the text, that's for sure. The fact is, the great heroes of the Bible are great heroes precisely because they did stand up for God and they did stand against evil. Daniel was in this same situation, and yet he said no. He refused to give up the dietary requirements of his Jewish faith and said no. And God honored that. And so do we when we read about it and admire Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the same situation when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made an image and demanded that they worship it. They looked him right in the face and said no. Even when he said, I will throw you into a burning, fiery furnace and destroy you off the face of the earth, they said no. They said, we have to worship God more than you. The mother and father of Moses were told their child must die. They said no and illegally hid their son to keep him alive. The apostles were threatened with beatings and imprisonment and even death if they did not stop preaching in Jesus' name. And they said, no, we cannot help but obey God rather than men. And they preached on. Fast forward to modern times, more recent times, we find people being told they must recant their belief in Jesus Christ or be burned at the stake. And they said, no from the midst of the flames. In Muslim lands, even today, people are told they must convert, uh, not convert to Christianity or be stoned to death or beheaded. And they continue to say no and continue to be martyred for the cause of Christ. Why then do we make excuses for Esther and for Mordecai? Women especially, and ladies, I mean no offense to this, but it's true, I think. Women especially seem to want to paint Esther as someone who had no choice. But the fact is she did. It would have cost her, but she had a choice. It always costs to stake a stand for God and for Christ. It would have cost her dearly. It might have even cost her mortally, but she could have said no. After all, isn't that exactly how we got here? Isn't that exactly why the king is choosing a new queen? Because his previous queen, a woman, had said no. She could have done that. Warren Wiersbe, in his book, Be Committed, he makes this comment. He says, quote, I wonder how many beautiful girls hid when the king's officers showed up to abduct them. Heartbroken mothers and fathers no doubt lied to the officers and denied that they had any virgin daughters. Perhaps some of the girls married any available man rather than spend a hopeless life shut up in the king's harem. Once they had been with the king, they belonged to him and could not marry. If the king ignored them, they were considered, they were destined for a life of loneliness, shut up in a royal harem. Honor? Perhaps. Happiness? No. And as I read that quote, it reminded me that these women did have a choice. They did have a choice. All of them came at a cost. Some of those choices were no more godly maybe than, than going along with the king's demand, but they had choices. And Esther did too. To call her a helpless victim is to ignore reality. The fact that she just went along with nary a whimper adds to the body of evidence that she and Mordecai were just not people who had any interest in the things of God. No prayer. No following of the law. No standing against those things that God was clearly in opposition to. And if I haven't convinced you yet of this truth, then there's a couple verses here that I think just drive the nail in the coffin. Verse number 10 and verse number 20. 
Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai's when she was brought up by him. They were hiding who they were. They were hiding. They were Jews, but they didn't want anybody to know it. They were hiding in plain sight. Now, I don't know why that would be the case. I don't know why they would think it necessary to hide their nationality. Perhaps there was some persecution of the Jews going on they wished to avoid, but the fact is the Jews had been set free. Uh, many Jews had returned to their homeland. It doesn't seem likely to me that this was about persecution. Perhaps, and I think this seems more likely, Mordecai thought their prospects for success with the king were elevated if they didn't reveal who they were. Perhaps their motivation was political aspiration rather than personal preservation. Mordecai was, after all, elevated to some position of honor, and we're going to see that only increases as we go throughout this book. Verse 19, we see him sitting in the gate. So what did not happen here? Neither Mordecai nor Esther prayed or sought sought God in any of this. They did not leave and return to their homeland as other God-worshipping Jews did. They did not object to the sinful actions demanded by the king. They did not say no, and they did not let anybody know that they were Jews. They hid who they were. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not my intent this morning to paint such a negative view of these two. I know many people consider them just the opposite. I know that many would preach this just the opposite. These were heroes of the faith. I don't believe they were evil people at all. I don't believe they were people who had some animosity toward God. I just think they didn't think about God at all. I think God was just not a part of their life. They were like so many today who go through life not giving a thought to God or to his claims on their life. And here's what we learn. This is great. We learn that God works in spite of such, that God can and does use even those who are indifferent and even hostile to him to accomplish his will. As I studied this, I'm coming to this conclusion. This book is not about Esther. This book is not about Mordecai. This book is about God. A God who reigns, a God who is sovereign over the affairs of men and women, a God who is ultimately and completely and miraculously in control of every molecule of his creation, even when it seems to be spinning madly out of control. God, who is there, actively working, even when we don't acknowledge him or see him. How do we not praise such a God? Well, so, we see what happened. See what didn't happen. Just for a moment, let's look at what can we learn from this. Are are there any lessons? And in no particular order, let me just mention a couple lessons that we might learn from this. I think it was Bob Jones Sr., the founder of Bob Jones University, who said, Do right until the stars fall. Do right until the stars fall. And, And personally, I think that describes one lesson that jumps out at us from this. We've already mentioned it. It's interesting the lengths some Bible students will go trying to paint Esther and Mordecai in a positive spiritual light. But the reality is there's no way you can get there from the text. Uh, They could have lived for God. Others did, and the story would have taken an entirely different turn, I'm sure. They, They could have ensured Esther was not available to the king. Others did. They could have said no to the king. Others did. Even another woman of Ashley. The fact is they could have done right, and they did not. We can look at them as examples of courage. We can look at them as examples of uh, God working in and through us and in spite of us, but we cannot hold them up as examples of godly people because there's just no evidence of that here. 
I was looking at that quote by Dr. Bob Jones, and I also found this wonderful little chorus that was written by Patch the Pirate, Ron Hamilton, based on that quote. And I love this. He says, from the very start, have purpose in your heart to do what's right and never question why. Never count the cost. Though everything seems lost, the price for doing right is sometimes high. Do right till the stars fall. Do right, do right till the last call. Do right when there's no one else to stand by you. Do right when you're all alone. Do right though it's never known. Do right since you love the Lord. Do right. Do right. Right is always right, and wrong is always wrong, and we must learn to separate the two. If you love the right, the Lord will give you light, so seek the right in everything you do. Do right till the stars fall. Do right till the last call. Do right when there's no one else to stand by you. Do right when you're all alone. Do right though it's never known. Do right since you love the Lord. Do right. Josh Richards and I were talking about this in my office yesterday morning, and we were agonizing over this particular passage and trying to figure out what in the world we're going to get out of this. And as we were talking about it, he made a couple of observations, and I wrote them down. He said, for example, if the Bible is true, it changes everything about your life. And then he said, if you truly believe there is a God, and that the Bible is the Word of God, and you know what it says, then it changes everything. It is all or nothing, end quote. To which I say amen. And we ought to say amen. And it should have been for Esther and Mordecai as well. And a second lesson that comes to my mind is this. When God is not worshipped, holy living is not possible. When God is not worshipped, holy living is not possible. Mordecai and Esther either knew nothing of God, and that may be the reason. They were in captivity. Maybe they did not know the Bible. Maybe they had not heard. I do not know. It's possible. They either did not know of God, or they simply didn't care about the things of God, which is also possible. They lived in a pagan land and were surrounded by pagan influences. But whether they did not know or just did not care, because they had very little knowledge of him or experience in worshiping him, they did not live for him. And that's a reminder to me, and this is a very simple lesson, it's a reminder to me that we need to be learning and worshiping regularly. We always get somehow to reading your Bible, don't we? We have to because we're Friendship Bible Church. But the fact is, I think we see that here. Maybe I'm stretching, I don't know. But I see it here. Read your Bible. Be regular in your church attendance. Because when God is not worshipped, godly living is not possible. The psalmist said, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Finally, one third lesson, and with this I close. I suppose it's the main lesson. God's going to get his way, no matter what people do. God will get his way, no matter what people do. We saw it in chapter 1. We see it in chapter 2. We will see it throughout the very rest of the book. God was working to accomplish his will through the lives of his people, whether they believed or not, whether they recognized his intervention or not. God was working, and he is working today. I don't know about you, but we should come away from our study of Esther encouraged by that thought. It was Warren Wisby who wrote, Even in the affairs of a pagan empire, God is in control. So let us learn that what happened here, from what happened here, that our God reigns, that he is, as our sister Sandy likes to say, large and in charge. And let us praise him that such is true regardless of us, in spite of us. He works when we are weak. He works when we are wrong. He works even when we are sinning and failing and rotten. 
And the greatest example, the greatest example of that truth is not seen in Esther or Mordecai. It's seen in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us in spite of our sin, went to the cross in spite of our sin, died and rose and lives to fix all that was broken in us. Not when we deserved it, but when we did not. It was not when Mordecai and Esther had it all together and were living perfect lives that God worked through them and for them. And it was not when we had it all together that Jesus came and died for us. It was when we had no thought of him. It was when we knew nothing of him. It was when we were lost in ignorance of him. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a good God we serve. Amen? What a good God. How do we not bow in adoration? How do we not sing praise God from whom all blessings flow? Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Father God, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. I pray, Lord, that somewhere in all of these ramblings, the truth has been heard and is clear. And I pray, Lord, that you'll just apply it to our hearts. I don't know really what kind of an invitation to give from this passage, so I'll just give the one that I always give. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray that somewhere in this, somewhere in the singing, somewhere today, they came to an understanding of the gospel, or at least a desire to know more of the gospel. And that as we sing, they would step out and let someone take the Bible and show them how they can know more clearly this wonderful Savior that we worship. And Lord, I pray if there's those here today who maybe something in this message spoke to their heart, maybe something uh, about one of the lessons that we have learned about how you are constantly working behind the scenes or, or Lord, how you, uh, uh, you want us to do right always. You work everything else out. Father, if, if there's anybody who needs to respond to any of these things, I pray they would. Lord, I think there might be some here today who want to present themselves for membership. I pray as we sing that that's the case. They'd step out. Lord, whatever the needs might be, some might just need to come and pray. But, Father, would you work in our hearts? Help us to respond to your word. Odd as this passage is, we know, Lord, it is your word. And we know that you have a message here for all of us. And so speak to us, we pray, as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.